This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, November 2nd, the Woke Men versus Harassers edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia. And in the New York studios, we have June Thomas, a managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. You know, Noreen, I feel like just sitting here, I have caught your cold. Like, oh, God. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> I'm uh, listening to my voice. I'm like, ugh. Thought it was sound right. like cool, sexy voice. <laughs> nope. Just, just germ voice, huh? <laughs> just nasal germ voice. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, before we get going, I want to say so thank you to all of you who wrote your gray hair manifestos. Those were awesome. Those were inspiring. I'm just going to read one line from one of them, which was from Rachel Miller, who wrote basically, do whatever the hell you want, what makes you feel good in the morning. And her last line was, and I think, June, you like this one, too. Don't let society play Delilah to your soul. <laughs> Where's that from? <laughs> that was really nice. Yeah. I love that. So thank you, Rachel, and all of you who wrote in. All right. Let's get going. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? Hmm. Hmm. I think we're going to talk about sexual harassment. <laughs> it is an amazing moment. Uh, the particular aspect we're going to talk about is woke men, the men who are around sexual harassment, the men who see it or maybe don't see it or should see it, what's their responsibility? We're going to have on our show Frank Four, who was the editor of The New Republic at the time that a lot of this was going on, and we'll explain when we get to the segment. Second, we'll talk about gender neutrality. It is everywhere. What is it? What does it mean? And what do we think about it? And then the myth of flexible work. It turns out that it's not so good for women, as two recent studies show. And then in our Slate Plus segment, June, you wanna you wanna you wanna do it? Yeah, we'll be asking our fishnet tights perforce sexist. Actually, can we broaden that topic? Of course. I feel like what's more interesting to me is like less fishnets specifically than like um, hooker inspired fashion, like literally street walker inspired fashion, which includes fishnets. Is that too? Is that too? No, that's no, good. No, it's good. But, but you okay. know, just yeah, so, yeah. but just so listeners who don't aren't members of Slate Plus, uh, no, we know that streetwalkers barely exist anymore. That uh, sex work has moved online, so it's a fo- sort of nostalgic streetwalker fashion, streetwalker chic. Yeah, well, we'll get to it. It's we like, will. It's like that's what's interesting about it. Um, okay, our first topic: sexual harassment. So we have had quite a week. Uh, a week which our intern Daniel uh, awesomely called the rapture, where one by one the men are falling. I like that phrase and I like that image. The The aspect that we're going to talk about is uh, sexual harassment is not 
isolated. It exists in a system. It's supported by power structures. Uh, and this is one of the things that women are upset about. Uh, so our question today is, are the men in the system, are they seeing it? What are they seeing? What's their responsibility in it? So the case we're going to talk about today is the case of Leon Wieseltier, who was the literary editor of The New Republic, a very old magazine. And he was the literary editor for many, many years and wielded a lot of power there, uh, partly by virtue of his relationship with the person funding the magazine, Marty Peretz, and just partly by virtue of his being the longest uh, running editor there and uh, being kind of brilliant and charismatic and having a reputation in cultural circles everywhere for just being a powerful editor. To talk to us about this, we have the very brave Frank Four. Hi, Frank. Hey, Hannah. Uh, Frank was the editor of The New Republic. How many years were you the editor, Frank? I was uh, the editor twice uh, for about, it adds up to about seven years. Wow. Seven years. Um, And because uh, Leon Wieseltier, who was recently accused of harassment by several women, um, uh, 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 incidents that were described amazingly well in an article by The Atlantic, in The Atlantic by Michelle Cottle, uh, if you want to get a sense of the sort of patterns and how he behaved. But Leon has been there forever. So basically every every editor of The New Republic uh, served with Leon um, and uh, dealt with Leon and probably had Leon as a friend. So uh, in addition to that, Noreen and I both worked at the New Republic at very different times, me in the 90s for several years. And Noreen, when when did you work there? I worked there in uh, 2013, 2014, and Frank was my boss. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Frank was the boss, not my boss, but Noreen's boss. So, um, okay, Frank, we are going to put you on the spot a little bit. Um, Let's just start with a basic question. When the news broke about Leon, what were the... What what was what was what was going through your head and your heart? Like, were you were you shocked? Were you feeling guilty? Like, what were the various things that that came to you in that moment? So, when it, when when I first learned, I actually wasn't entirely sure what the. I mean, as news arrives, it kind of comes in drips and drabs, and so I, I got wind that um, that there was that there was a a group that had formed after the Harvey Weinstein uh, revelations that had begun to discuss Leon um, and their uh, women's history with Leon. And I learned that there had been stories that had emerged that uh, people were talking about in the open for the first time that were, that were, that were incredibly bruising and, uh, that were that were startling. And wait, I want to make one quick correction there. Wait, wait, wait. Before you continue, because this is a point that Michelle Cottle made in her story. Um, she she started her story by talking by making fun of the term "open secret," which is a funny right. term. I know that you meant in the open, meaning like because it wasn't really in the open when the group were discussing it. It was more just like among themselves. But um, by in the open, you, it's not. You mean in the press? Because one interesting thing about Leon is that you know everybody kind of knew. Like, it wasn't even really a secret. Like, we all talked about it. The women always kind of talked about it. Um, right. So, yeah. Well, I guess what I mean by by in the open was that it, it was like, by moving into that discussion group, it was like beyond just something that people whispered to one another or beyond something that was just, uh, um, you know, th- those conversations before, I uh, you know, happened for sure. But I think that they were more, um, even, even if this chat room was kind of behind closed doors, I think it was less behind closed doors than 
all the discussions over the decades. Well, this was purposeful, it seemed. I think maybe that's what, what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this was purposeful. Right. Like a lot of things that have happened this week, it seems like a moment when in one form or another, women band together, feel more empowered, you know, share stories. There's a kind of unity that was in the Bill Cosby scandal seems to be existing in smaller ways in lots of other little scandals in the media these right. last few weeks. Right. So I guess from my from my perspective, I mean, it, the, after the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke, I I had talked to friends at the new Republic. And, um, it wasn't like the revelation of that, of that list and that discussion came as a complete shock to me. Um, and, and kind of, I had started to run back in my head, uh, uh, like, you know, cause, cause I, I, I started to get wind from other reporters and from, um, other members of the extended new Republic community that, you know, did Leon, you know there was this talk about like, how did Leon fit this Harvey Weinstein pattern? And did the men talk about that? Like, did you feel like the men talked about that amongst themselves, or was that just listening to the women talk? At what point? You mean um, over the years, or no? At first... although I'm curious about that too. Okay, go ahead. At any point over the years, over the years, I mean, over the years, I don't really think that they did. I think that there was. It was like a high degree of obliviousness to it. Um, I mean, it's really, I, and I, it's like it's so hard to know kind of what's I just, real denial. What's yeah? Go ahead. I just don't think that's true. At least not when I was there. I think that a lot of the men on staff knew. I remember jokes about it. I actually searched my G chat and found jokes about Leon's behavior. Um, and you know, I wasn't I wasn't in the DC office. I wasn't observing it on a daily basis. But it, you know, it's a it's a crowd of highly observational people. It seems insane to me that that all of these men would not notice something that was happening under their eyes, and in some ways, like for their benefit, in a weird kind of power lording way. So that was. What do you mean by for their benefit, Noreen? Well, it seems like if you're sexually harassing people in the open, that it's it's you know they're they're. There are a couple kinds of sexually harassing behavior, and one is in secret, and it, it you know, um, that's its own psychology. But this was really sort of a public displays of skeeviness, um, which seemed to me to be just as much about showing other men that you have a kind of power in the office that they don't have, that you are untouchable, that you're you're the king, and that that's sort of my read on that situation. The office dynamics are complicated. Did you did you witness something or I mean what what was your first hand? Uh, no, I mean I I you know no, I didn't I didn't witness anything that I would directly describe as sexual harassment, but I heard stories from other women and from men who worked in the DC office. But there was an air at the New Republic of kind of like, well that's Leon. Like you have to like the Byzantine power structures of the New Republic right. are such that you have to like Leon survived every editor. Leon picks the editors. Like you, you, you know, this is just what happens. And there was almost an air of shtick about it um, by the time I was there. And I, so to me, what? Oh no, Noreen, it was exactly the same when I was there. I mean, one of the things I'm kind of grateful for is that you know, women your age and younger 
just like have such clear lines around what is harassment and what's acceptable acceptable like i feel like the women my age who were there really felt like well that's just the system like it never occurred to us yeah. that there was any other way to be like there's the sun and the sky and the moon and that's just how it is and you just have to deal and i was just so grateful that people younger have a totally different view even if it is complicated because it is complicated and michelle cottle described it and it's all in its complexities and and any woman who worked there could describe it in even more complexities, there's still a kind of bright line like this, we call this out. This is not cool in a workplace. And, you know, for that, I am grateful. Like, we didn't think about it like that at all. And I, and I guess, like, you know, for, for from my perspective, I mean, I, I, you know, to say that I didn't know about harassment, what I, so I think that I need to make an, like a distinction that was maybe important to me then, but is, uh, like as I've kind of absorbed the story and talked to uh, women who worked at the New Republic, I think that there was like there was part of it that was kind of out in the open that was that was culturally accepted and that was kind of accepted when I arrived and I just never questioned, which was that there was there was an element of kind of off color joking, which was kind of what he did. Uh, about everything, um, which uh, that was kind of that was that was accepted, and then I think that over the years there was uh, there was kind of comments objectifying women or, or, or talking about appearance. I felt like there were, you know, to my shame, there were uh, there were a handful of times where I heard him talking about women in the office where I didn't. I didn't object or I didn't, I didn't complain. And I just kind of buried that in my head and um, didn't really think through the implications or challenge it. So that part is real. I think that there's part of the story that in Michelle's piece that I just, that I was either oblivious to, or just didn't grasp or, or maybe buried my head in the sand. But I, I think I was largely oblivious to, which was the, the, the predatory nature of it all, which, uh, as it relates to, to younger women and, and the Sarah Wildman incident and, and so on, you know, all these examples that added up in that piece. And that's the part that I, I feel like I, I totally, I totally miss. And I understand that there's a connection between these two things. Um, Frank, Frankie, when you were, when you were in the room, and Liam made one of these comments. What did you do? You just didn't say anything. Did you join in? Did other men join in? I mean, as as you I mean, as you were you were the big boss. Did you like? Did you ever think, wow, this is, you know, what what were you thinking? Okay, you you said you didn't intervene. Why didn't you? And like, what what was your role in so, all of this? I mean, just to I mean, uh, so. Um, when I heard those, when I heard that, when I heard a comment like that, I think my response was probably shame or, you know, extreme discomfort and kind of wanting to wanting to hide or, cha- you know, changing the subject pretty quickly uh, would have been uh, the sort of res- it would have been my was my response. And to be clear, it's not like I was um, it wasn't like I heard these types of comments uh, every day, every month. Um, it was it was it was things that would be kind of scattered over the course of, uh, you know, many hours, uh, many, you know, many, many, many hours, many months of conversation. Um, 
uh, I mean, I, okay. you know, confront, confrontation is hard, I think, yes. is, is, is part of the grand moral of this entire story. And I wish I shrouded myself um, in, you know, in, do, in doing the right thing and, and being confrontational in those instances. But um, really, I was just I was just profoundly uncomfortable. Well, and I have I yeah. have an explanation for why I think it happened. And then I have a confrontation um, for for why I think it bugged people so much. Um, so I think like part of the romance of working at a place like the New Republic or other magazines where I've been talking to people, you know, sort of the literary magazines that still remain is that you can kind of like screw around and talk about ideas and it's a small office and and like it's not a corporate atmosphere right and like part of the fun of it is that you do get to you know drink with your coworkers and and talk about ideas and 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 that was all wrapped up in that and i think that the leon mystique very much had something to do with that um but when i saw the men of tnr tweeting their surprise i guess my feeling was that their surprise must be at how it made people feel more than that it happened, right? That, like, women would have taken some of these incidents and, um, you know, taken them to heart in really deep ways. And I think that had more to do with the larger – and this really clicked into place for me with the Leon thing, some of my own frustrations of the New Republic. Um, It had to do with the larger atmosphere of it being a boys' club. I think that it might not have hit people – quite as hard had they felt like they had actual opportunity at the New Republic, that they weren't closed out of certain conversations and and just not given certain reporting assignments because of their gender, had, you know, some structural things been in place for women to succeed at the New Republic. I think that is part of what made it so frustrating for people was that it wasn't a climate where women were treated the same. I think I agree with you on on, uh, both points. So with the first I, I definitely think that the the informality of it was part of um, part of what made you know gave it its mystique, and it's also part of what um, makes makes something like this so difficult. Um, where there's it doesn't feel like there are necessarily rules or institutional structures, and also I think that why um, why weren't there though? Why wasn't there an HR department at TNR? Um, I mean, there was this sense that it was too poor to afford one. Um, and I think when, by the time Chris Hughes came in, there was kind of a de facto H, I mean, not HR department, but there were people who handled HR. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, you know, on the other point, I do think that, you know, in the way in which, um, in the way in which like, the last couple weeks have been this kind of, m- you know, they, they, they disrupt the system. Like, they, they cause you to think about everything, uh, at least me. They've caused me to think about so much afresh and to kind of to, to rewind the tape and to kind of rethink certain assumptions and to also just listen to, <laughs> to, have, to have pretty tough conversations with uh, my friends and former colleagues. I do think that there is a way in which... Um, what you're describing as the boys club culture and the way in which women sometimes felt um, unseen or, or treated in um, as, as uh, inferior members of the intellectual community. 
I think that that in a way is kind of the toughest part for me to hear. And the one that um, I think is the, it's like the most, to me, to me, it's like the most rattling observation of it all because uh, to be honest, it's like, I, I, you know, there's this gap between, um, between your values and lived reality. And so when, when I came back to the new Republic in 2012 for the second time that I edited, I sincerely, like I understood that there was a boys club culture. And so I, I kind of set out to change that. And, um, the fact that, um, that was so difficult, it may, you know, maybe that I failed in that regard. Um, and, you know, made so little progress and ended up that, that, that culture is so powerful. Um, and that, you know, the ways in which maybe even I was trapped in that culture and. But do you feel like you perpetuated it in any way? Like, like, like we were all trapped in it, but do you feel like, what do you think actually happens that one just like slides along with it? Is that what happens? It's just like, oh, we're back at the new Republic. It's a new era, I don't know. but the forces are, I don't know. I mean, the forces are. Well, I, I'd be curious and... to hear Noreen's thoughts on this, but from you know, from where I sit, it's like I, 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 I went and I, I tried to hire, I tried to hire women in to create greater uh, gender balance in in the staff. Um, I tried to, um, you know, I, I I tried to give women, for instance, uh, a Vita byline count where we tried to yeah, get closer to. Uh, gender balance with our bylines. Um, I definitely had the sense that you wanted it to be better. Um, but I think that there are structural things that, you know, there were pay disparities that I've since heard about, some of which are sort of shocking. There was no maternity leave. Um, you know, a woman who was pregnant was asked to research her own maternity leave and the publisher told her that, you know, technically we didn't need to give her any maternity leave. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, that was bad. But then I think, you know, uh, and, 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 and can I, I, I just, I, I don't want to just like, I, 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 I helped it, you know, reverse that policy. Um, and, yeah. I know and that's great. But I think, I think like, I do think on some level you're correct that there are these larger structural forces that do often drag down these efforts. So so there were a lot of women hired. They were lower on the totem pole. They weren't sort of in the rooms where decisions were being made. There was sort of one senior woman editor, unless I'm misremembering. Um, you know, I, I think that there is a... There were certain structures that were part of the institution, like the editorial board meetings that, for whatever reason, favored a certain kind of male argumentation. There were there was a bias against culture writers. There was an unwillingness to sort of try women on politics in exactly the same way. I think there were little things that had to do with the history of the magazine that made it very complicated. But also, you know, it, it like the New Republic is a is a unique institution, but also in some ways just like par for the course, you know, everywhere I've worked has had this problem to a greater or lesser degree. But I will say that the New Republic is the place where it felt most acute. And part of that is because the historical legacy was so um, present, I would say. Frankie, uh, I'm curious, um, you know, and I realize you're in a way you're standing in for the the male editors, the male journalists who who now 
um, you know, are confessing their obliviousness or their lack of having noticed something. Yeah, you're um, being a good sport, Frank. Yes. Thanks. So, like, <laughs> what will you do differently next time you're an editor? Or does, does the fact that you didn't see this massive pattern of discrimination against the women who worked with you or for you disqualify you from being an editor or even maybe from, you know, how can you be a good reporter if you didn't even notice that this massive pattern of of sexual harassment was going on in the office that you worked in? I mean, again, I'm being very personal to you, but isn't like you're you are the standing now for men in this profession. This is a profession that's supposed to be about observation. And yet apparently, you know, a good number of the people working in it were completely unable to observe this massive pattern that was that was absolutely surrounding them um i think i i've i've spent a lot of time um after this not so much about um i'm not i don't don't have any i have really no desire to go back into management uh ever again (laughs) um but the sense that noreen got at in her last comment was kind of the sense that men the culture of journalism the culture of intelligentsia, um, you know, having, having grappled with that, you know, why, why are Vita counts off? Well, it's, yeah, it's cultural, it's historical, but I mean, aren't there ideas about female intelligence that are kind of embodied in a lot of that ingrained bias and, 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 in this notion that kind of men have had such, uh, difficulty kind of comprehending the uh, the culture of their institutions or the damage that they that they've done uh, to women. Um, I mean, I, I all I can say is like I take you know it's once you once that's kind of you see that and um, your your view of the world has been transformed. All you can do is be. Um, I, I don't I don't know. All I can do is be more curious and open and, um, and engaged and, uh, try to do better for myself, which is, um, at least now the one thing I can control since I don't run anything. Now, Noreen, you asked me why you like you're, I think a lot of people are feeling radicalized. Partly it's because of what Frank said. I myself look back at those years and think, why? Like, why was that the structure that I lived in? Why did I think it was okay? Why did I think it it would never change? Um, But you asked me why I could possibly feel hopeful. That's not what I, well, that's sort of what I said. Not exactly. <laughs> well, a lot of people just feel pissed off, so I won't pin this on you. But it is it is kind of that, like the seeing clearly moment, mm-hmm. um, even if the seeing clearly like pisses you off. But the way the way the like I said, the way young women can just kind of like draw a box over what happened and name it. I find that hopeful. That's that's very different from from me. Um, I mean, what I was and then just the ability that like now the spot, like the flashlight is shined there. Is like you pick people out. I mean, somebody was accused and play and placed on um, leave from from uh, from NPR just yesterday uh, for this reason. So there's just like okay, flashlight, flashlight, flashlight. There's just something to be like. How could you not appreciate that? Yeah, you know? and and I think like actually the sort of you know the woke man thing like that's sort of a mocking phrase a little bit. No offense. 
Um, but <laughs> but taken. actually, I think that's to me an important thing in this moment that that there are a lot of men who are truly shocked and that and like on some some level I'm mad I'm like well why didn't you see that mm-hmm. before but like you know it wasn't your life you it like this separate thing doesn't necessarily connect to this separate thing and it didn't even for me until really in some ways until watching all the power structures that supported all of this sort of come crashing down a little bit and I think that actually just having men think it through is a good thing for you know, society going forward. And, there are and nobody's supporting the men. Like, they're being right. fired, right? And placed right. on leave. It's like as soon as one's outed, it's like half a day before the institution does not support them in the way that they did. So that's all yeah. good. And there are certain structural challenges that, yes, apply in journalism, but also any place where you are rewarded for being a little bit special, for thinking a little bit differently, for for expressing your ideas a little bit differently, that can lead, doesn't have to lead, but that can lead to certain people kind of being exempted from the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, I never met Leon, and, and from what I um, have heard about him, I never wanted to, but clearly, the, you know, even people who have had horrible experiences with him talk about also his charm and his brilliance. That is... A tricky contradiction and they're maybe not quite behaving like he has behaved but you know whenever there's somebody who's who's kind of who's whose success is based on their seeing things differently and being treated we tend to treat them differently and that can be so problematic because we want those people and want to reward them and we want them to do well and do well for us but like you just can't let people have different rules applying to them like we just can't keep doing that yeah and i will say the other the other complication in ways in which rules apply differently is that at least in my day unlike a lot of the men who were at the top of the new republic he was interested in women and i don't just mean sexually he was interested in he he mentored not all of them you know but some small number he really he was interested in women he was interested in in culture he was interested in a lot of the things that women were interested in and in kind of nurturing women's careers so that's like an extra complication to this whole thing right you know right um anyway frank you have been a sport. Thank you for coming on the show. My sort of pleasure. <laughs> okay. That's what all our guests say. You are say. free. You may leave the basement now. <laughs> all right. Bye. bye. Thanks, Frank. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Gender neutrality. So last week, Sam Smith, the singer, came out saying, I am just as much or I feel just as much woman as I am man. He talked about uh, having women's clothes and high heels in his closet, going years where he didn't wear any male clothing. The headlines called him gender non-binary, although some people objected to that because he didn't call himself gender non-binary. And then on top of that, a lot of gender neutral fashion, gender neutral neutral toys, clothes, schools. Uh, And so we're going to talk about this trend uh, first, you know, what's the difference between these two things and what does the trend mean? So who wants to explain the difference? I can try (laughs) and June can correct me. I don't know. But I so gender non-binary is is sort of like 
not believing in some sense in the binary between the genders that there's a male and a female and, and that you are, you know, one or the other, whether you've transitioned there or were born there. And and gender neutral is more of to me, maybe I'm incorrect in this, but it seems like more of a teaching concept, like a kind of pedagogy that like we are not going to teach children that they are that there are boy things that boys do and girl things that girls do that, you know, this is just how humans behave. Like gender neutral is not a gender category. It's sort of an androgyny of ideas. And things. And things. And things. Yeah. You're not going to say this is a boy's shirt. It's a shirt that fits this size of child. Right, right. And you would never right. say I'm a gender neutral person because that just doesn't, you know, necessarily make sense. That's what I thought is that gender non-binary is an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, gender neutral is not exactly an identity. It's something you say about objects like toys are gender neutral, clothes are gender neutral, or it's like a my child rearing is gender neutral or something. But but you but you gender non-binary is something you are or feel that you are. Um, so 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 that's so that's the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel very different to me. They yeah. feel very differently. Like one is from the inside and one is from the outside. Like a parent can decide to raise their child gender neutral but cannot decide that their child is gender non-binary because right. that's like how the child feels or right. what the child mm-hmm. – you know, your chi- you could raise your ch- child gender neutral and, and get the opposite result, which is a child who's mega gender binary mm-hmm. just as a like screw you mom and dad kind of thing, which has happened in the past. And then there's gender queer which is a more yeah i mean i think we there are so many terms that i think each has its each person i you know chooses a term that suits them but i think um essentially there's a there's a lot of similarity between these terms it's just like what each person feels mm-hmm. represents their particular view of themselves but i think those are the main distinctions well gender queer felt more en- enveloping to me and then like gender non-binary almost yeah. feels like an intellectual yeah. categorization like rejection of gender as a concept whereas gender queer is kind of like expansive although i feel like we should all be gender non-binary like when i read gender non-binary i feel like well everybody should be that except the whole world should be that like everybody else is living in a construct and really like if you go through some phase in your life where you don't feel like wearing you're a guy and you don't feel like wearing guy clothes then that's fine it doesn't it feels to me like we should move to a world where that just is the norm you know it's funny hannah when you started talking as soon as you said should i was like oh no yeah. shirts, no shirts. But then actually, you know, when you finish what you're saying, like, yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, I think really for a lot of people, whether they identify with their assigned gender or not, or in, in however many, you know, varying degrees they do, um, that this whole idea of what girls are supposed to like and be, how they're supposed to behave and those those ideas are so damaging even to people who don't really have that much quibble with them. Like it's just this notion of something being imposed from the outside because of tradition or history or just what your mom thinks or what that woman down in the street is going to say if you, you know, don't meet the rules. Like, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. It also seems to me more fluid. Like gender neutral feels rigid to me. Like I'm going to read, whenever I read about these experiments, it feels very forced and constructed, whereas gender non-binary feels like a, like a gentler. I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean, but, you know, it's just a matter of what we're used to. Because, yes, you know, any time that you say I'm going to challenge the status quo, it can sound really hardline and really imposing some strange idea and just being really rigid. But what we're stuck with now is that, 
You know, like it's you, people I think are, are doing things that seem like can seem to some people like crazy experiments because there's kind of an acceptance of something that when we really look at it is full of bullshit. Well, and so the experiments that you're talking about are mostly they're experiments that people are doing now in gender neutral preschools, for mm-hmm. instance. And obviously Sweden is at the forefront <laughs> That's always. of this. It's always Sweden. Um but I was I was very interested in that because if you said to me, okay, gender neutral preschool, I have a bunch of nieces and nephews, and they are so like the idea of gender is almost so inherent to the way they see the world. Even if their parents don't want to categorize yeah. things, they want to categorize things. They want to know is this what girls eat? Is this what boys play with? Like, and maybe they are picking it up from social cues. But but kids are interested in categories and trying to use people that way. So I was sort of like, well, it seems very, very hard to have a preschool where there that isn't happening. And what these studies seem to show is that, okay, yeah, you're going to sort of fail. Okay. Yeah. Like kids will pick up on gender roles, but they will pick up on less of the harmful stuff from them if you don't enforce it in school, if it's just like talking about people rather than girls do this and boys do this. And that seems kind of great to me. Like, why aren't we doing that? Like, okay, fine. We can't avoid gender, but... Yes, yes. I totally agree. I'm like, I understand that, you know, Sweden is the paragon of all crazy gender (laughs) experimentation. I get that. On the other hand, I think that feels normal. Like, I guess if your teacher is kind of like, you know, like, like punishes you if you play with a doll and you're a girl, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, but in general, they are always dividing in schools like boys here, girls here, boys do this girls do that like no reason for that there's lots of different ways you can break up a class and so the more that a school cannot reinforce that that is the er distinction between people why not you know yeah why not just like send girls to this game and they'll still you're right noreen like they're still like the boys will still go out to the playground and like more boys than girls will play football or wall ball or soccer or whatever is going on and maybe more girls and boys will play tag but it won't be quite as extreme i bet right. or it won't be or it won't feel enforced it won't, won't feel like yeah this is how you're supposed to be mm-hmm. it'll just be what you feel like doing or it's more likely to be that way totally what do you guys think of the gender neutral fashion like i picked up my vogue magazine this summer <laughs> and there's like Gigi haddad and zayn malik they're like switch clothes and i wear his clothes is that all just totally performative bullshit? I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say, right, if it's performative bullshit, but I'm very aware that it's only possible if you are the exact, you know, model size. I mean, I, you know, I really like hey, men's... June, you're, a, you're an androgynous fashion icon, I, 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 I'm, 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 I think of myself as a cross-dresser because I like men's clothes. I really, I mean, for myself, I don't really like women's clothes, but I have to concede that they really don't necessarily fit me or suit me. You know what I mean? Obviously, you can make things fit, but like fashions are designed for a certain body type and if you don't have that body type you're going to be a little bit off the you know you're not going to be right on and I think so what that's what I mean about these like when we see them in fashion magazines it's it's fashion magazine fashion right and Luke's and androgynous fashion has been around you know for a long time and in the sort of modern era Coco Chanel started it and it was like skinny flat-chested women looked incredible right. in the clothes exactly. that she made right but uh, yeah it, there is like sort of a privilege to being able to pull it off <laughs> yeah i would say that androgynous fashion going one direction has been around for a long yeah time. yes so the thing yes. that's relatively new is men wearing skirts like men sort of feeling free to wear women's clothing but but women who are i mean even the term tomboy which my son mm-hmm. was asking me about like when i'm a tom girl now i'm like well why is that a, even a term mm-hmm. do you know what i mean yeah um yeah. 
So, uh, so yeah. So come on, boys, wear skirts. Wear <laughs> yeah, skirts. That one's going to be slower to catch on. I yeah. think. But <laughs> get, no, but yeah. but give it twenty five years. I'm serious. Like that'll that'll happen. And and makeup too. And you're missing out, boys. By the way, oh I gotta say skirts, skirts are, the best. are super comfortable. They're the best. So are dresses. Anyway, uh, it, listeners, if you have any experience, I'm actually very curious about gender-neutral child rearing. But if you have any kind of personal experiments, little things you've done to either raise kids gender-neutral or yourself, kind of move towards more gender, non-binary, I don't know, presentation, thinking, whatever, uh, write us at doublexgabfest at slate.com. All right. The myth of flexible work. So we dream about flexible hours as the uh, answer to many of our problems, whether you have children or don't have children. Uh, it seems really awesome and tempting to live by – not live by the office clock. So now we have two studies which show that flexible work is a great disappointment and particularly to women. One in Germany, which shows that it's good for men but not really good for women. And most of the studies show that it increases hours for everybody. Have you guys ever worked flexibly? I mean, I feel like I do all the time. Like I can work from home if I want. I can work on the weekends if I want. You know, I can work all the hours I want. Um, and I don't, nobody is forcing me to. So I guess I, I feel like I really do have a very flexible work schedule. I mean, I think it's often the case for so-called knowledge workers like us. Yeah. I, I When I was a writer, I worked flexibly. But at my current workplace, my boss likes FaceTime. So you, you sort of have to be in the office. Um which which can be annoying. <laughs> Commuting. Yeah. I mean, there, there are two things that came out of these studies. One applies to everybody, thus a gender neutral conclusion. Mm -hmm. And one, see how I use that term? Like beautifully. beautifully. And what a pro. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And the other one is just for women. The one that's the, the one that's for women I'll talk about first because it's kind of expected and depressing, which is especially in Germany, they kind of reward the men like they think it's great when men do it. This is this now I remember that Anne Marie Slaughter article in the Atlantic where it's like if a dude is saying like I ran a marathon and so everybody's like oh he takes time off to train for his marathon and that's really cool. Uh but but if women ask for flexible work to do, you know, domestic stuff, it's it's kind of frowned upon. So I think in the German study the men ended up getting paid more, like rewarded more. Um, and then also working class women did not get were, were sort of frowned upon when they asked for flexible hours. Right. I mean, yeah, there's two things there, which is that it was interesting that in in that German situation, it was expected and kind of employees expected and rewarded the fact that like guys would take classes or do something like for themselves, improve themselves, make themselves more desirable employees, but that women would kind of do caregiving, whether it was for their kids or their some part of their families. And so it was, you know, it was almost like the men are going to become better employees for doing this, but the women are going to become worse employees. That was how empl employers thought, which is devastating. And then the second thing is that this really does seem like a middle class thing because it's, I mean, just on a kind of organizational basis, like it's actually fine if I'm working, you know, if I do, so, you know, as long as I'm, you know, if, not keeping people waiting or as long as I'm, you know, working well with my coworkers, that's fine. It doesn't really matter when I do my work. But if you work in a shop or if you're a nurse or if you are a caregiver or if it's any kind of thing where you must be there at that time, obviously flexibility is not by any means impossible, but it is just far more 
difficult to organize and far less likely to be allowed. Although I feel like the workplace could catch up to that because there's all no sorts of yeah. ways you can split shifts yeah. and, you know, um, I mean, doctors can't really work flexibly. They have to see their patients just as nurses have to see their patients. Mm-hmm. But uh, but there is a kind of human need not to always completely be bound to the office clock no matter who you are. It just seems to be a human need. Absolutely. Like life doesn't necessarily operate that way. Do you think that the conclusion of the German study, I mean, when people wrote about this, they sort of, there was a strain of like, it's Germany's fault, like Germany's just not woke enough. Um, and and I wonder if like the culture comes first and then the structure, that's one thing I was tr- trying to figure out, or does the structure drive, we tend to think structure drives culture. So you just institute a policy, like let's say we instituted maternity leave, God forbid, in America paid maternity leave, then like the the culture will will follow that. But this seemed to indicate that it doesn't work that way. That's what was depressing about this study, that like you kind of have to change people's attitudes or the or the policy changes that you make just end up reinforcing whatever cultural stereotypes already are there. Right. Bad news for famously woke America, you know. Yeah. I just I found this so depressing. I mean, it just seems like Flexible work has been held up as this ideal for how, you know, we are going to solve the problem of women getting left behind a little bit in the office when they have kids. And this, like, it makes sense to me that that it doesn't actually work once you see the studies laid out in this way. There are startups now that are trying to connect women, that, that are trying to basically facilitate flexible work for women. And a year ago, I think I might have said, oh, that's a good idea. But now that I've read this study, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Is that actually the best way to to sort of, you know, push push women ahead in the workplace is by perpetuating this? I don't I just don't like what's so what goes after flexible care if this isn't the solution? I will say that flexible work saved my life. Like it worked out well for me. And I realized I was completely, completely lucky in that sense. But, you know, I was working at the Washington Post when my children were born. And I just realized like that that sort of, you know, the FaceTime being at the office, like it was killing me Mm. and it felt unnecessary. Um, And so and so that's when I dropped back and became a freelancer. Now it worked out. I was a freelancer. Like I got contract work. Um, I, I realized that's a total, total position of privilege. Um, but um, but it does break my heart that that's like I just didn't you know, when you ha- when you're new to child rearing, especially, it just feels hard yeah. uh, sometimes to, to, to live by those hours. There was an article in Slate where um, someone talked with uh, an expert on European attitudes to flexible work. And there was one story that filled me with a little bit of optimism, and that was the Netherlands. Apparently, um, you know, the Dutch are very strict, like they will work 36 hours in a week. They are not working more and they're very productive in those 36 hours. They're the most, they're among the most productive people in the world and then they leave work behind. And that is uh, clearly like an attitude that is broadly felt. And it's funny because oftentimes when attitudes are broadly felt, I think, oh, that's wrong then. <laughs> uh, and yet when it suits me, I, I like it. But it does feel like if if for real and not just as something that people say if for real you're you're going to go to work you're going to do your work and then it's going to be done like that actually seems like the best situation 
Yeah, get back at me when some of this stuff is replicated outside of Scandinavia, I guess, is my takeaway yeah. from today. No, but that's that's actually an anti-flexible work. Art. That's the thing I found most interesting about yeah. these no, anti-flexible work absolutely. articles. Yeah. yeah, it's just that no matter who, this is the part that's gender neutral. Flexible work is kind of bullshit because everybody ends up working a ton more. So it's this kind of American idea. Flexible work just means infinite work. And yeah. this is because this is this gets into kind of, you know, rational biases. This is because we are not rational beings and we have a terrible time kind of predicting like how much time something is going to take and we also like we make the wrong decisions minute to minute so even if you start the day saying i'm only going to work this amount in the moment you feel like oh i have to answer those 26 more emails right now Mm -hmm. and so because in america there's a culture of like just more work um you you people who commit to flexible work just end up working all the time yeah it's interesting it really was and i and i kind of think it doesn't have to be you know i think yeah you're right we don't really learn we especially in this country we really do not learn from the examples of other countries but maybe we should try you know and you can't just try it too because it has to be really serious like to be really serious about it and i have to say too that you know as somebody who doesn't like nobody could be more privileged with their time than me like i don't have kids i don't have family members i have to look out for i'm really very you know it's just me i'm very selfish and I often will do a little bit of work late at night or early in the morning because it gets it off my like cognitive load, I think is the yeah. is the is the jargon term. And so and that makes me feel good. So like I sleep better knowing that I've taken care of something. So I would have a very hard time moving away from that if I could only work in the office and only during those hours. That would be really hard for me. But you know what? It sounds like it might be better overall. All right. So everyone listening to this show, stop working. Put it all down. <laughs> stop. Just just go home. Turn your brain go off. Home. Turn your brain off. Promise yourself you're t- you'll turn your brain off by a certain time and then just do it. All right. Um, so let's uh, do our recommendations. Noreen, what do you have? I have two recommendations. Um one is a podcast that I think I recommended in its first season when it was um, based in New York. Now it's in L.A. It's called There Goes the Neighborhood, and it's a podcast about gentrification and the way that it works sort of on the ground level, um, interviewing people in what are euphemistically known as changing neighborhoods, um, both the people who are coming in and the people who are getting pushed out. And it, it's really well done. Um, and then the other recommendation um I last weekend watched American Gigolo, and I just want to recommend a young Richard Gere. That's all I got. <laughs> just like as a spec, like a physical specimen, just, or as an actor, or if you want to turn off your brain, you know, you've done your flexible work for the week. Just, just sit back and watch young Richard Gere in Armani suits with this weird. I mean, he's. Yeah, yeah, just just kind of fun. <laughs> I met, I interviewed Richard Gere, and I will never forget it. It was uh, it was a Dalai Lama conference. Wow! Um, <laughs> and he was sitting in the front row. <laughs> and I interviewed a bunch of celebrities, and he was one of them. He is like one sexy, charismatic guy, like in the flesh as well as on the screen. He just is. All right. Well, I'm going to recommend a book called Code Girls by a friend of mine, Liza Mundy. It is the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. 
It's in the in the tradition of hidden figures. It's just a fascinating untold story, which she unearthed from all these archives of these women who are almost secretly recruited, mm-hmm. like from women's colleges in various places, uh, to be code breakers and just the sisterhood of the code breakers, uh, which nobody knew about. And she found some kind of last remaining members of that group, and it's just fascinating um, to th- to just think about like how like why that would be kept in secret and how it was all gathered and sort of who the women were and what their social norms were then. It's a really fabulous book. I'm so interested in that. You know, in Britain, the women of Bletchley Park and and men too are, you know, became famous and there's lots of cultural representations of them, including kind of mysteries that take advantage of the idea that these women had to pretend that they really hadn't done anything in the war when in fact they were doing this really important and really clever war work. And it's funny that that hasn't really been brought out with the American aspect of that. Uh, so I'm really keen to read that book. Yeah, it's just like a little blank spot, you know, because yeah. it's a it's a similar kind of vibe. Like yeah. why they they it was supposed to be like, oh, we're just secretaries. Yeah. You know? Yeah. June. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to go with a really obvious uh, recommendation. Uh, but I finally finished American Vandal this weekend. Yeah. And I started it just because people were watching it and talking about it. And like they kept talking. So it's a show that's kind of a satirical view of like true crime shows, podcasts, but it wears its satire incredibly lightly. And essentially, it's about who did the digs. Uh, you know, somebody vandalizes uh, cars in, in a high school by by drawing penises on them. And it's just completely committed. The actors are amazing and they're completely believable as high schoolers. And after like two or three episodes, you're like, why am I watching this? And then by like six or seven, you're like, oh, my God, let this never end. And it's so well done. If you think it might be a bit too childish and doodly for you, I really recommend you give it a chance because it's really so fun. That You know, I totally thought it was too childish and doodly because I saw all the ads for I it. I know. And I was like, that's for juvenile dudes. Yeah. Um, but I'm totally going to watch it now. It's really fun. And I mean, I, I hate to say to people, stick with it because like that essentially is saying, please waste your time if you're not liking something, which is stupid. But... It it's it really is one of those things that like the more you sit with it, the more amazing it gets. Um, well, great. And uh, before we leave you today, I just want to just recommend the Audio Book Club, which is one of Slate's longest running podcasts. It's now run by the amazing Katie Waldman, who, if you are a reader of Slate, you will be a huge fan of her work. I feel certain. Um, so the Audio Book Club is a discussion, a monthly discussion of a book. It's as simple as that, but it is always so stimulating. The latest edition was a discussion of Hillary Clinton's What Happened, which I think our listeners are going to be interested in. Katie discussed it with Megan O'Rourke and Emily Bazelon, and it's definitely worth your time. And the month after, in at the end of November, they are going to be talking about Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan, another book that I know a lot of people are super interested in talking about with their friends. Well, if your friends haven't read it, then you can kind of be involved in the conversation with the Audio Book Club, which you can find among the Slate podcasts. Great. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you, as always, to our wonderful producer, Verilyn Williams. 
to our wonderful intern, also part producer, Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. We thank him, too, because we don't thank him enough. Uh, And listeners, today we're going to ask you, take some time to rate and review this show in Apple Podcasts. Um, Good reviews and ratings are really helpful to us. They help our visibility. They help people discover our show uh, and, uh, and listen, just like you're doing. So please do that if you can. So that's the show for Juna Noreen. I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you in two weeks. Bye.